welcome back to Health Law Diagnosed, a MINTS podcast dedicated to health law, health policy, and social issues in the healthcare industry. I'm Bridget Keller, your podcast host. Today, I'm here with two of my colleagues, Stephanie John and Hassan Sheikh, for a special episode debriefing our recent Pharmacy and Pharmaceuticals Industry Summit. Our summit took place a few weeks ago, and so I asked Stephanie and Hassan to join us and give us a rundown of the topics of discussion. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Stephanie, Hassan, before we get started, why don't you take a moment to introduce yourselves to our listeners? Stephanie? Thank you for having us today, Bridget. I'm Stephanie John, and I'm an associate in our DC office. I focus my practice on advising various healthcare clients, including pharmacies and digital health companies, on regulatory compliance and transactional matters. I look forward to our conversation today. Perfect. Thank you. And Hassan, how about you? Thanks, Bridget. Uh, My name is Hassan Sheikh, and I'm a health law associate in the D.C. office as well. Um, And I primarily focus on PBM, plan, and pharma contracting, and then advising on both buy and sell side healthcare transactions along with Stephanie. Great. Thank you both so much for joining me. So why don't we start with session one? We had a really full week at the Pharmacy Summit last month, and it was a really great discussion each day. And so, Hassan, I think you um, attended session one, and we're going to tell us a little bit about what you learned um, from the state of the PBM industry. I am. And let me just say exactly what you said a second ago, Bridget. It was such a full week, and all my notes from each session overlap so much. So I'll talk about some stuff from session one when we get to session four. You know, we just had such great panels of people with wisdom from each piece that then applied later on. And so I thought that that was a very cool part of the summit. And Tara Dwyer, who I'll mention later as well, had some great tidbits throughout each one. But I do want to start with session one, where the majority of the session was focused on vertical integration and the different opportunities that PBMs, which are pharmacy benefit managers, have to get involved in the healthcare industry as it's growing, as it's changing, as digital technology is increasing with, you know, providing healthcare services to patients. Susan, Teresa, and Tara talked a lot about how vertical integration has increased substantially in the last few years and how the biggest change is that insurers are starting to become the anchors. What they're doing is they're purchasing, acquiring, contracting with PBMs, plans, and most interestingly, providers to start really creating a fully integrated system that helps them control their costs, helps them control the management of care for their patients. It increases the access that their plan members have to prescribers. And then, of course, it provides a lot of good cost efficiencies as well. An interesting little tidbit that I learned listening to the session was the fact that acquisitions of primary care physicians has increased a lot. United Healthcare and Optum alone have about 60,000 employed or aligned physicians, with half of them being in primary care. So there is a big focus on trying to make access to primary care easier for plans and plan members, which was a, a great you know fact to know and something that is a big positive to this vertical integration that's going on. Hassan, that's a great point. And I I was really interested to hear that too about the primary care acquisition and and how that's really factoring into vertical integration here, you know, especially because you hear anecdotally about all of these acquisitions happening here and there. And I didn't realize how significant the trend had become. 
Um, so I thought that was really interesting. And, you know, you mentioned one other thing about opportunities for PBMs to enter into new spaces. Can you tell us a little bit about that discussion as well? Yeah. And I really had two takeaways there. The first was, you know, that digital technology, especially in the era of COVID and as we kind of enter into post-COVID has had a huge boom. You know, there's now ways to meet with people for mental health, for things such as hair, teeth, dermatology, pretty much across the spectrum of any healthcare service you could need. Now there's some sort of way to get that access digitally, which has been great. And I think that that is that disruption in healthcare services has kind of opened up a new opportunity for PBMs to jump in and maybe, you know, help provide services to these newer companies that are using digital platforms to provide health services. Um, But the second opportunity is something that we're seeing here at Mintz and that I think a lot of other people that are working with PBMs are seeing, which is a trend to start managing prescription benefits for inpatient hospital care, long-term care, and even hospice claims. And so, you know, we've, we've been working with different groups, different individuals, different PBMs as they start to navigate waters outside of Medicare Part D and commercial claims. And then also, you know, as they try to essentially provide this service to all of these new digital technology, you know, healthcare companies that are coming up. Yes, it's really interesting to see, you know, as we start to emerge from, uh, you know, the pandemic a little bit, you know, how these delivery of care models are evolving and, and, you know, what will stay. And I think that really takes us right into our next discussion on sessions two and three. Um, session two is about evolving consumer models and digital health strategies. And Stephanie, I know you um, attended that one and had a few thoughts there. So let me turn it over to you to give us a rundown. Yes, Bridget, you said it perfectly. I think it. Um, we were lucky to have Marty Elaine, who provides regulatory consulting services to the pharmaceutical industry um, with Real Solutions Group. And then we had our own Teresa Carnegie and Lauren Mother of Mints, and they discussed the impact of COVID-19 on retail pharmacies and how the pandemic has forced retail pharmacies to reimagine the traditional retail pharmacy model. While COVID definitely brought about an increase in growth in revenue to pharmacies, it also brought its own set of challenges. Um, for example, the increased competition that we now see with non-traditional payers in the pharmacy space and digital health companies that have entered the space due in large part to the relaxation of regulatory barriers during the, the pandemic. This was just a common theme I saw across multiple discussions during the summit. When you look at the impact that the pandemic has had on various players across the healthcare industry, we see that COVID and resulting changes have accelerated changes that various players have wanted to see within their respective arenas, but these changes might have otherwise been stalled or dragging along. But the very conditions that facilitated progress in those areas have also come with their own set of challenges. For example, in in this discussion, the panel discussed the change in the scope of practice granted to pharmacists and pharmacy technicians that resulted from the urgent demands of the pandemic. For decades, pharmacists have been fighting for authority to administer vaccinations and haven't made any real progress. And then almost overnight, we saw pharmacists and pharmacy technicians been granted the authority to administer COVID vaccinations. Um, Marty made a great point and said, you know, despite this change, COVID didn't do much for the push towards obtaining provider status for pharmacists, which would allow pharmacists to bill for patient care services. 
But what I thought was interesting is that if you take a look at the challenges that um, are either posed by COVID or were exacerbated by COVID, um, for example, pharmacies that are now grappling with pharmacist burnout and poor work conditions due to staffing shortages, increased competition from the entities looking to disrupt the pharmacy supply chain, and those smaller independent pharmacies who are struggling to stay afloat in the current climate. These changes are forcing pharmacies to rethink the traditional model. And the panel discussed one you know, important restructuring trend in that a lot of the large retail pharmacies are restructuring themselves to provide holistic healthcare and wellness and essentially market themselves as a place for patients to receive primary care since they've proven that they could during the pandemic by offering COVID testing and vaccinations. And I think it led the panel to wonder, uh, me to wonder, well, while COVID may not have directly caused a change in the provider status for pharmacists, if we see the pharmacy and primary care model really take off and pharmacies become more central to the delivery of primary care services to patients, I wonder if we'll see COVID indirectly restructure the pharmacy model from the top down, if pharmacists are then given a provider status to start to facilitate the delivery of the primary care services, would we also see an increase in responsibilities and services and a change in scope of practice for pharmacy techs and assistants who would then need to have expanded authority because they would need to fill in the gap in services because the pharmacist would now be providing a wider range of services and have a wider range of responsibilities? Yeah, it's a great point. And, and I really loved how you hit on the fact that, you know, we were able to push some of this work along and the scope of practice opened up a bit during the COVID-19 pandemic. So so it's really interesting to see, you know, what new world we'll be living in, you know, in a few months or a year from now. I think that takes us right into our discussion on session three, which was equitable access to care, the promises and challenges of digital health. So Stephanie, why don't you give us a rundown of how this factored into our overall discussions at the Pharma Summit? Yes, definitely. Um, so in session three, we were lucky to have Dr. Bertha Hidalgo, who's an associate professor from the University of Alabama. Um, and we also had Angela Kung and Kate Stewart of MIDS, who discussed the expansion of telehealth during the COVID pandemic. And it brought us back to this same theme of the conditions that facilitate progress also create new challenges. In this case, the COVID pandemic facilitated a dramatic increase in the use of telehealth services, as we saw state and federal requirements for providing services via telehealth uh, were loosened. Uh, you know, one statistic I found really interesting was that in 2019, prior to the pandemic, there were approximately 850,000 Medicare fee-for-service telehealth visits. In 2020, there were approximately 52.7 million visits. So prior to the pandemic, geographic limitations and hard policies against audio-only visits limited the availability of telehealth services, especially to those in rural areas. But we saw the loosened flexibilities during the pandemic allow providers to treat patients across state lines and use a wider variety of modalities to conduct telehealth visits, such as permitting audio-only and telehealth visits conducted over the phone. However, um, Dr. Hildago presented some interesting data. Um, her research showed that there were disproportionate increases in telehealth visits across certain racial and ethnic groups, for example, those who identify as Black or Hispanic, and vulnerable populations, so those with low income or limited health literacy, limited English proficiency, or um, limited access to broadband or um, digital services. And those groups saw a disproportionately smaller increase in the number of telehealth visits. 
Angela provided a really informative overview of what's being done at both the federal and state level to increase access to broadband services, but ultimately the data there also mirrors these same inequities. Adults who are low income and Hispanic and Black adults are less likely to have access to broadband services. So it's great to see the speed with which health systems have adapted to the COVID climate and have adopted and increased the um, use of telehealth services. But you know, at the end of her presentation, Dr. Hidalgo, I think, issued a very apt warning. If we're not careful, as states continue to um, rely on these flexibilities and even make these flexibilities permanent, if we're not careful, the benefits of telehealth and the associated technology could also increase existing disparities in access to healthcare across vulnerable populations. Wow, that's so interesting, too, to see just the numbers, the sheer increase in telehealth visits, digital visits year over year. It's really interesting. So our fourth panel was about transparency and drug pricing developments. And Hassan, we're going to turn this one back over to you to tell us a little bit about this panel. Yeah, thanks, Bridget. You actually were on this panel, so you might feel like this is a little bit of deja vu, but you, Tara Dwyer, and Xavier Hardy, I think, did an awesome job kind of covering a lot of information super quickly. I think it was just 50 minutes, but it was jam-packed with information. Um, so at the top, let me just quickly tell you what Tara said about the rebate rule, which we, we heard about a couple years ago, which was proposed with the Trump administration. Um, the idea there was to essentially take manufacturer rebates out of the safe harbor. Um, and that was a rule that was essentially a final rule. And then we didn't really hear that much about it. And it turns out that in the uh, November 2021 Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, there was a small little portion of it that essentially put a moratorium on that rule until at least January 1st, 2026. And Tara and, and you and Xavier were talking about how, you know, does it mean that that rule is dead? Is, is the idea of removing rebates from the safe harbor ever going to come back again? And it seems like it probably won't. Um, but my takeaway, which Tara had mentioned in the first session and that she talked about here as well, is that CMS or the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services is probably positioning itself to at some point in the future, at least get more transparency around manufacturer rebates as they're paid out for Medicare Part D utilization. And, you know, that all relates to a recent rule that was passed um, that Xavier talked about, which was the, the price concessions changes. Um, and really, at, at a broad high level summary, the rule basically changes the term negotiated prices into negotiated price. And what it requires is that pharmacies at the beginning of their negotiations with plans or PBMs are completely made aware of the lowest possible price they could be reimbursed. And, and I think this kind of plays into what Stephanie was talking about with session two, which is that, you know, pharmacies are now providing more services, different types of care. But one of the things that they struggle with, especially local independent pharmacies, is, you know, uncertainty in how much they'll be reimbursed for drugs that they dispense to plan members. Um, and so what CMS is trying to do is essentially rewrite one definition, which will then require at minimum for pharmacies to know if everything goes against me. And I'll explain that in a second. If, if I don't do a good job as a pharmacy and under my contract with a PBM, they have the ability to take a little bit of money back because I haven't met certain requirements, which are called pharmacy price concessions. 
if I have to give all of that money back, what's the minimum amount of money I will get for, you know, a drug that I've dispensed? And right now, CMS sees all the types of remuneration that is paid out, that pharmacies are getting, you know, that plans are paying out. But right now, they haven't really paid too much attention to uh, manufacturer rebates. They've started with pharmacy price concessions, which are a little bit opaque, and they have historically kind of been excluded from this negotiated price that is reported to CMS because of this type of exclusion, which is called the reasonably determined exception. And so we're going to see, I think, a little bit more transparency, and this might be a catalyst to get CMS to start maybe inquiring more into rebates, getting a better understanding of, of how much pharmaceutical rebates are playing into the contracts between plans and PBMs and PBMs and pharmacies specifically. It was a really interesting discussion and you're you're pointing out a bunch of the key high-level topics, Hassan. And the last piece of that session was about state initiatives. You want to tell us, our listeners, a little bit about the state initiatives here too? Absolutely. And I mean, tying it all back, you know, we are talking about drug transparency, pricing, and, you know, the session did start off trying to ask, you know, how are we going to reduce or solve this drug pricing problem? And Bridget, you and I have been working on research for this stuff and, and drafting blogs and things. But one of the solutions that some people see is is state legislation. And so we've seen a lot of state initiatives recently um, that are focused on trying to increase transparency, maybe provide more reimbursements to pharmacies, and then, of course, reduce the costs at the counter for patients. But one of the most interesting things after Bridget, you had gone through a couple of the states that currently do have these laws being proposed or being passed, you know, and just a few that I'll mention are like New York, Michigan, recently Iowa has also been been getting involved in state legislation there. You know, one of the maybe unexpected side effects will be that drug prices or, or trying to get this fixed might be a little bit more difficult because what state initiatives right now are doing are really trying to tackle the issue of pharmacies feeling like they don't know how much they'll be reimbursed, and they're kind of operating in an unexpected world. And so a lot of the state initiatives right now are, are focusing on you know, requiring PBMs to pay pharmacies certain amounts, not to prioritize certain pharmacies like affiliated pharmacies over other pharmacies. Um, and what this is going to do is it's, in, it's going to increase the amount that pharmacies are getting paid by PBMs, but we're not really sure how that will affect drug pricing as a whole. You know, it, it is a very opaque system and the the pharmaceutical supply chain is very complicated. So right now, state initiatives are really tackling this first portion or this one portion of the supply chain. But I think that the open question where I left off and what I'm, you know, thinking about with all of our colleagues is how is this going to affect this problem that we're trying to fix, which is that drug costs are just too high especially for for patients at the pharmacy counter. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and all of these legislative initiatives, whether it be at the federal level, CMS specifically, or the states, they're all um, taking different approaches. And so it'll be interesting to see uh, what, if anything, really does impact the price um, for the general consumer at the pharmacy counter. 
So why don't we turn to uh, the last day of our pharmacy summit, and this is session five. It focused on free drug programs, and it was the regulatory guidance and enforcement related to these programs. So Stephanie, let's turn it back over to you to um, give us an overview of this talk. Thanks, Bridget. And I actually think this is a great segue from um, what Hassan was just talking about. Uh, Teresa and Taref really focused on the various types of pharmaceutical manufacturer assistance programs, which are essentially manufacturers providing some form of assistance to help reduce the cost of drugs. They discussed three types of assistance programs. The first was manufacturer assistance with supports and services, where manufacturers provide product and reimbursement support to physicians and patients to assist with costs and access issues. Tara did elaborate and mention that government enforcement in this area has attempted to scale back the type of support services available. Um, so, for example, the OIG has taken the position that if manufacturers provide too much support to the prescriber in the prior authorization process, for example, um, they would be inappropriately relieving the prescriber of administrative burdens. Uh, the second type of assistance program they discussed was copayment assistance. And this is where manufacturers would offer the copay coupons directly to commercial patients for them to use at the pharmacy counter to reduce or eliminate that copayment obligation. Um, here in the enforcement arena, the OIG finds that these coupons may encourage patients to purchase more expensive drugs because of the assistance they would receive with their copayment. Um, so they find these coupons to violate the federal anti-kickback statute and prohibit the use of these coupons by federal program beneficiaries. This is the type of assistance program I'm the most familiar with just in the work that I do. I've you know, reviewed for a number of pharmacies, their safeguards to ensure that copayment coupons are not used by federal program beneficiaries. But um, I learned the most in this third discussion of manufacturer assistance, these patient assistance programs, or PAPs. And I learned a lot from Teresa and Tara's discussion of the enforcement around these programs. Um, so just as a bit of an overview, patient assistance programs, or these PAPs, provide financial assistance to help the uninsured or underinsured access these expensive prescription drugs for little or, or no cost. So at first glance, you know, they sound like an effective way to address the high cost of drugs, um, especially for the high cost of specialty drugs. But um, as Tara discussed, uh, the DOJ conducted an enforcement sweep of these programs from around two, 2017 through 2020. And they ultimately found that a lot of manufacturers were using these PAPs inappropriately. They saw that some PAPs only funded a single drug or uh, manufacturers would only donate money to the one PAP that covered the drug that they themselves made. And so the OIG found that these steer patients towards the manufacturer's own drugs and um, ultimately they're indirectly um, causing increases in list prices and allowing manufacturers to offer copayment assistance to federal healthcare program beneficiaries. In 2018, the OIG did issue a letter that provided guidance regarding the safeguards manufacturers should put in place to ensure that their PAPs are not problematic. Um, and they've also since issued a number of favorable advisory opinions that have evaluated the structures of PAPs and determined what they find to be a permissible use of the program. So we have since seen an expansion of these types of plans in the market. But it continues to be an ongoing hot issue. Pfizer recently actually sued HHS after the OAG prohibited Pfizer's offer of direct copayment support to Medicare patients for Tefemadis medications, which cost $200,000, 500000 a year. 
And um, it was, they had secondly also tried to request to fund an independent charity to help with co-pays for these medications. In that case, the judge ultimately denied Pfizer's request, saying that the, the solution did not lie with the courts. But I think this is just an interesting area of enforcement to monitor as uh, manufacturers will continue to play with permissible PAP structures for these programs. I think you're absolutely right, Stephanie. This is not the last we're going to see here. And we definitely need to keep our finger on the pulse of what's happening as, you know, manufacturers come up with different ideas of how to make, you know, their new medicines and therapies and drugs available to patients, you know, via these types of assistance programs. So you're, you're absolutely right. Stephanie Hassan, thank you both so much for joining me today. You gave us all such a great overview of the Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Summit. It was a great summit. I really enjoyed attending it. I know you both did as well. And so for our listeners, you can find the supporting materials from the summit on our website at mints.com. And if you have any questions about this episode or previous episodes, please feel free to email us at healthlawdiagnosed at mints.com. Thank you. 